Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This week, we are joined by Aditya Bahadur, a postdoctoral researcher at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. I'm sitting down with Aditya after his appearance in the CID speaker series at the Harvard Kennedy School on February 28, 2020. So could we start by you just telling our listeners a little about your research? Sure. So for the last 15 years or so, I've been working within the field of climate adaptation and resilience. Most of your listeners will know that solutions to climate change fall into two buckets. You either focus on mitigation, which is preventing the emission of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, or helping vulnerable people deal with the impacts of climate change, which is through adaptation and resilience building interventions. So I focused on the latter. My PhD looked at a big resilience building program in India and how it was unfolding in a small city. Subsequent to that, I worked with the Overseas Development Institute in their adaptation and resilience team, helping international organizations develop strategies to deal with the impacts of climate change. And before I started my postdoc, I was working with a big UK government-funded project in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh, working shoulder to shoulder with governments, developing new institutions and policies to deal with climate change in their countries. So your talk today will be specifically about reducing climate change in cities in developing countries. So what is it that makes these cities so critical in climate change conversations? And are there particular differences in the way developed versus developing cities are set up to deal with the climate change crisis? Sure. So we are at a very interesting moment in time. Two major things are happening. Urbanization is the defining demographic trend of our generation. 55% of the entire world now lives in towns and cities. For the first time ever in the history of the world, more people now live in towns and cities than in rural areas. Cities are expanding rapidly in some of the most poor regions of the world. Sub-Saharan Africa has an urban expansion rate of more than 4%. In South Asia, it's more than 2.5%, which is massive. At the same time, there is a massive amount of climate risk that is coalescing across the global south. The rate of climate change is intensifying and towns and cities are facing increasing amounts of extreme temperature, extreme rainfall and a number of other hydrometeorological disasters induced by a changing climate. Two-thirds of all cities over 5 million in the world lie in low-elevation coastal zones. 740 million uh, urban residents across the world earn less than $1 a day. So they are unable to deal with these big impacts of climate change. They don't have the social and financial safety nets in order to deal with the disasters that are already battering them on a daily basis. So with rapid urbanization and intensifying climate change, the time is ripe for us to stop business as usual when it comes to urban resilience and really ramp up this work to help some of the world's poorest cities deal with the risk of climate change. There's a clear difference between how the global north and the global south deals with it and it comes down to money. A country like the Netherlands, for example, which is an industrialized country, has developed very sophisticated engineering solutions to the impacts of climate change. They have sluice gates that can sense tides and open and close themselves. They're building cities on stilts. And the poorer countries, for example, Dhaka, is unable to undertake many of these engineering solutions because they are expensive. And therefore, we need to find contextually relevant solutions for cities of the global south to deal with the onslaught of climate change. That's really interesting. So your research has looked at ways in which cities can be protected against the effects of climate change. Can you tell us a bit about your key findings here? Sure. So as in my talk I discussed earlier today, there are five types of interventions that we are recommending. 
One, we're talking about the need to improve the way we understand how climate change impacts cities through the use of information communication technologies and big data approaches. Number two, we're arguing that work with poor people in cities at the community level and partner with them to develop solutions that are relevant for local areas. Number three, we're saying don't overlook the priorities and the knowledge of people living in informal settlements because cities across the world have large amount of informality that needs to be accommodated. And number four, we're talking about training and building the capacity of people running the cities and helping run the service delivery systems like water, energy, transport, health, and telling them what climate, how climate change is going to impact the sectors and what they can do about it. And finally, we're urging cities to um, stop relying on international climate finance because that's never going to be enough to deal with all the impacts of climate change that they're going to face and focus on partnering with the private sector and generating their own resources to deal with the impacts of climate change. So we're looking at data, working with communities, planning, urban services, and finance as the five core areas of action for systemically enhancing the resilience of towns and cities to the impacts of climate change. So your research also talks about the role of frugal innovations in addressing the challenge. Can you give us some examples of such innovations that you've seen working in different contexts and how these frugal innovations can be made part of something more systemic? Absolutely. I think there is a big role for frugal innovations emerging informally across the global south in scaling up action to deal with the impacts of climate change. There are a whole plethora of examples. I'll give you a few. And I'll also kind of offset it with some of the more formal approaches. So, for instance, a good example that I talked about earlier today in my talk comes from Indonesia, where Solo City wanted to put in a new transport system. So they hired German engineers to come and design a bus rapid transport system. So this wonderful blueprint that was prepared in Berlin or Hamburg or whatever was unfolded in Solo City and a BRT system was installed. Of course, there was already an existing informal set of transport systems in play that were sidelined, marginalized by this formal system. But the bus rapid transport system never really took off. And after a couple of years, they did a forensic investigation to understand why people are not using this big, expensive, well-designed German transport system. And they found that there was no last mile connectivity. Essentially, people were unable to get from their homes and offices to the beginning of this network. And this was precisely the kind of service that the informal transport systems were providing. They were applying short distances, carrying people for relatively uh, little money, and helping cover shorter distances that no other transport system was really doing. And by sidelining that system, they undercut the performance of this big formal system that was being put in place. So this is a small example about how frugal informal systems can help formal systems work better. Another clearer example of technologies that maybe have come through Jugaad innovation or frugal innovation that can help deal with the problem of climate change comes from Jharkhand in India, which has suffers massive power cuts, but also increasing amounts of incidences of extreme heat. So to solve this problem, a local entrepreneur essentially rigged up a poor man's generator where they sourced solar panels cheaply from China, took second-hand batteries from motorcycles, rigged these up into a makeshift generator, which goes online when power cuts happen, allowing poor households to keep running a fan or a desert cooler despite power cuts in times of increasing heat. 
Similarly, a large number of frugal innovations have taken place in building technology, where low-cost, locally available building materials have been used to develop cool buildings that don't need artificial cooling that most people cannot afford, and most regions of the world don't have enough power to support. So yes, frugal innovation is playing an increasing role, and we are seeing instances of how this kind of innovation, instead of being sort of serendipitous, is being systematized across the world. The government of India, for instance, the Department of Science and Technology, runs something called the Honeybee Network, which is a government-mandated network which solicits and catalogs these different innovations so that industry is able to link in with these innovators and access and scale up some of these innovations. In some of my earlier work, I had pleaded with international organizations working on climate change to adopt and include some of these innovations in their work. And we saw the United States Agency for International Development, which is a big actor in the field of disaster resilience, include the importance of inculcating frugal resilience in one of the big calls for proposal that they launched for dealing with climate change in Bangladesh. So it is happening, and I have no doubt that this is going to become a bigger area of work. So the policymakers are working with the local actors to develop solutions at a larger scale and a smaller scale? That's right. The solutions are developed essentially to solve problems at the local level, but to make sure that they go to scale, that other areas where these innovators are not from can replicate some of these approaches. We are seeing growing examples of people realizing on how to do that. The government of India's Honeybee Network is precisely for this. So if someone's developed a solar panel in Jharkhand, which is in sort of the north, the central west region, central east region of the country, someone in the south of India can go onto this platform and say, oh wow, we'd like a similar generator, so can we go and meet with this innovator and bring them to our region to expand the development of this generator for our neighborhood as well. So it's kind of like an innovation matchmaking service that the exactly. Exactly. So can you help us understand exactly how deep the current problem is? Are there concrete steps political and policymakers can take in order to start implementing your recommendations? And have you seen these happen in some places already? The problem is extremely urgent. I know we keep hearing this on all over the place that the time to act is now, the time to act is now. Having written this book, I really realized the time to act is now. We have a relatively little amount of time to start acting on this. So yes, everything we talk about in the book is backed up by an example of how that may be happening in some form or shape somewhere and argue for it to be scaled up. Especially when it comes to political actors, in the book we're arguing for a systematic increase of capacities and competencies of those helping run cities in the global south to deal with the impacts of climate change. For instance, I've argued that unless dealing with climate change is actually formally a part of a particular person's remit in a city or a state, things are never going to happen. And for example, in New Jersey, we saw that by official decree by the governor, the assistant commissioner in the Department for Environment and Conservation was formally charged with building resilience to the impacts of climate change, which means that he now had an official mandate to convene a cross-agency group of 16 focal points that could systemically build the resilience of New Jersey. We're also arguing that we need to build capacities of organizations to deal with the impacts of climate change. And this includes a whole range of things, but adaptive management, which is a style of management that deals with problems as they emerge flexibly, is going to be vitally important to dealing with the uncertain impacts of climate change. I'll give you a quick example of this. A water utility in California is mandated to do three things. The mandate to meet the water needs of end users, 
at the same time they mandated to maintain a certain amount of water in underground aquifers and not exhaust them irreparably and to do this they are mandated to issue cons conservation targets now in times of drought they have the legal mandate to revise conservation targets on a weekly basis so that they can maintain the balance between the what is in the ac underground aquifer what users need in rapid cycles and keep changing them to maintain this delicate balance in the system to ensure the resilience of the water system in this part of california this kind of mandate doesn't come automatically most utilities are allowed to issue conservation targets say once every year or once every 5 years but an institutional setup that allows an organization to manage flexibly is going to be vitally important for dealing with the impacts of climate change and this individual and organizational level capacity will only be built if there a policy architecture and an institutional architecture is in place to do that and that needs to be done by incentivizing institutional actors to take the right measures i'll give you an example from india india has a federal structure much like the united states where the federal government divides resources between itself and provincial or state governments and how this division takes place is based on a number of performance based indicators so for instance a province that does better on financial management and meeting certain development targets the educational outcomes gets more of a pool of central resources than other provinces as of this year risk management has become one of those parameters so a state that does better on managing the risk of climate change in their cities and hinterland areas is likely to get more money from the federal government than other states and you know that nothing incentivizes people like cash on the table so sort of, and to taken together at the individual organizational and institutional level these are the actions that political actors need to take in order to up the ante on building resilience and adaptation in urban areas of the global south so you've mentioned how urgent this issue is and how action really needs to be taken now what do you believe are the consequences of not acting immediately consequences are immense we are going to suffer a lot of economic loss across towns and cities of the global south that already have a precarious financial status we are going to see increasing morbidity and mortality from climate change impacts concomitantly we are going to see mass migration in and out of areas that are being battered by the impacts of climate change which in turn will can lead to a whole host of problems be it the spread of diseases that previously not entered areas and we can see social unrest and we could potentially over time see the breakdown of law and order in particular areas which you are already seeing after some disasters in different parts of the world that feel underserved by their governments when it comes to risk reduction On the flip side, what would you say is the best possible case scenario? If all the relevant policymakers across the world were to invest in purchasing my book, um, <laughs> they will find Learn that it will lot. lead to a massive increase in their ability uh, to yeah. deal with the impacts of climate change. No, but on a more serious note, yes, I mean, on the more conservative end, we have an opportunity now to put in the systems to reduce economic impacts of climate change on various critical sectors across cities of the global south. We have the chance to save millions of lives of the poorer citizens who inhabit and live in our cities but also resilience can be a positive agenda where it can help grow the economy research undertaken by the overseas development institute demonstrated that if you invest in say reducing the flood risk in a particular area that helps grow the economy attract jobs for example some of the most flood prone areas are also some of the most geographically beautiful areas so if you reduce flood risk in these areas by putting in say flood protective infrastructure you can construct hotels and attract tourists and grow the economy 
So in this way, resilience need not only be a conservative agenda about protecting losses against losses. It can also be a positive agenda of securing a dividend of resilience building, helping grow the economy and attract jobs. So I think this is the crucial bit that policymakers need to understand that it's good financial sense to invest in urban resilience. Well, wonderful. I hope they listen to your podcast. (laughs) Thanks again to Aditya for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research events and upcoming speaker series lectures at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week.